Right. Well, good morning, everyone. Yeah, it's so wonderful for my family and uh, to be here this Christmas with you all. Um, as Josh has already alluded, um, he is like my brother, and so it's for us, it's coming home to family, to be with family and have such a sweet Christmas with the Max and, and all of you. And um, it's so fun for us to see everyone who's already been there on the team who came earlier this year, and uh, they feel like family too. And uh, through them, it's a joy to be able to get to know all of you. And so even on Friday night when we were here, it's so encouraging to see what the Lord is doing here at Cornerstone and even this morning to be able to worship the same God on Christmas. Uh, we are truly family in Christ, are we not? And so it's joy for us to be able to be with you here. So I want to invite you now, as we come to study the Word of God, to turn your attention to the book of Galatians. Open up your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians, because it's Christmas. And my country and where we're from, there's 11 official languages, and my family, we speak Afrikaans. And so we say, Gesiende Kersvies. I'm not going to have you attempt that, don't worry. Gesiende Kersvies. But um, you might think we might turn to maybe one of the Gospels as we look at the Christmas story, but today we are actually going to talk about a little bit about the consequences of Christmas. The consequences of Christmas. And we're going to start reading from Galatians 3, 23. But the emphasis for our text today will be on chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. So join me now as we read from the Word of God. Galatians 3, 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean, chapter 4, that in the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, one of the things we know that happens when a newborn baby comes into the world is that they bond with their mother and father in a significant way. There's a real closeness and a unique intimacy that is formed as they are being held and nurtured. And we know that babies, were. When they come into the world, they cry. They cry a lot. 
But maybe you know that as a parent, you know the cry of your child. I don't know if you've ever seen that. You, it's actually pretty amazing. You could be in a room full of all these different people, all these different children, and you hear this baby crying, and a parent would jump up and say, oh, that's mine. They know that sound because they know that cry belongs to them. Now, the same is true of the child of God. Because every one of God's children has a distinctive cry that makes it clear to them and everyone around them that they belong to God. The kind of cry that show that we are His children. And that we are so closely known and loved by Him that out of all the different noises in the world, He knows our cry. He knows your cry. Today, I want to consider with you some of the consequences of Christmas. And not the consequences of setting up all the lights and decorations and getting your home ready and the tree and all the gifts and cooking that wonderful food for the family that's coming over. But rather, the consequences of who you are because of Christmas. If you study the book of Galatians, you will see that Paul is passionately defending the truth of the gospel. Because Paul has realized that the Christians in Galatia are doubting who they are before God. They are doubting whether they are, in fact, part of God's family. Why are they doubting? Well, one reason is because they are being confused into thinking that to really belong to God's family, you must go back to keeping all these religious Jewish traditions again. And become someone different from whom you already are in Christ by faith. So that they too are sharing in God's inheritance. That's basically what Paul has been doing throughout the whole letter of Galatians. He's writing this passionate, very, very passionate letter to the churches he planted there. Because the church is busy turning their back on the grace of Jesus Christ. They're becoming confused about what Christmas is all about. Because they are turning to a kind of Christianity that is all about keeping the rules and becoming like this legalistic Jew to really be a child of God. A kind of slavish Christianity where you are ultimately depending on yourself. A kind of Christianity where you get on this exhausting treadmill of trusting in your own works. Where you feel as if you're constantly in the cycle of trying to do something good. That will make you feel as if everything between you and God is fine again. You see, some of the religious Jewish people were telling the Galatians, Hey, I know you're new to this following Jesus thing. So here's how this works. Let me tell you how this works. If you really want to be a child of God and be part of His family, then you are going to have to be like us Jews. You've got to be serious about the law of Moses like we are. You have to be circumcised like we are. You must keep the traditions of our fathers like we do. Oh yes, and you need Jesus too. He's sort of important too. They were just tagging Jesus onto their religious system. Because they really believe that what makes you a Christian is if you are still keeping the law of Moses. 
Back in Galatians 3.26, an attempt to get the Galatians to turn back to the truth of the gospel, Paul wanted to show them how close they are to God the Father because of their faith in Jesus. He wanted them to get their identity crisis right. That Gentiles and Jews are both equally sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But here at the start of chapter 4, Paul is now expanding on what it means to be a child of God. He's building on this amazing truth that all Christians are united to Christ and united to each other by emphasizing how it's even possible that we can know and live in the reality that God is our Father. Because Christmas is not just a time where we think about that baby lying in a manger and people coming to visit with their gifts. But specifically, Christmas is also about the truth that God is our Father because of the gift of His Son. And as a result, we become sons and daughters of God because of being adopted into His family. Because one of the consequences of Christmas is the fact that Jesus came to save you, which means you are no longer a slave to the law and your own efforts, but a liberated, adopted child of God. You see how Paul mentions that in verse 5. Look down again, verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? Adoptions as sons. In fact, I like how J.I. Packer says it in that classic book of his, Knowing God. I'm sure everyone in this church has read it by now. He explains the answer to the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? And he says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well. So I wonder how many of you actually enjoy thinking about what it means to be a child of God. That God is our Father. Because we know that many people doubt how God sees them because of their continual struggle with sin. Because of wanting to be a better Christian. And then feeling the weight of God the Father's holiness, but seem to miss the sense and the embrace of His fatherly love. In fact, Packer goes on to say later that the doctrine of justification is the primary blessing of the gospel, but not the highest blessing of the gospel. And you're like, you read that and you're like, wow, what could be better than knowing that I'm justified and declared forgiven of all my sin because of what someone else has done? And what Packer is basically saying is that it's one thing to know and believe that your sins are forgiven, but it's another thing altogether to intimately know and trust the one who forgives that sin. To cry out to the one who knows your distinctive cry. To know the one who chose you to be his child. Even though you are so messed up by sin. To know the one who looks at you and says, that's my child. And so the question I have for you this Christmas is, do you believe that God wants to be your father? Do you really believe that God wants to be your father? 
And the way you answer that question reveals what you understand about Christmas and the gospel. You see, there's a difference between knowing the creator of the universe is my father and really believing God wants to be my father, not because of me and what I do to keep him happy with me, but purely because of what that baby in a manger did when he came into this world and what he would end up doing in his perfect life several years later, dying on a cross. And so as we look at Galatians 4, 1-7 today, God is saying to you this Christmas, I want to be your father. He is saying, I want you to be mine. And to understand biblically how and why that is true, we need to talk about the consequences of Christmas and what it means to be adopted by God. And what it means to share in the inheritance of Jesus. So we're going to see from the first verse, Seven verses of chapter 4 that God wants to be our Father by understanding, firstly, our status before our adoption. Our status before our adoption. Secondly, the process of our adoption. And then finally, we'll talk about the privileges of our adoption. So let's read again chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And how Paul explains, firstly, what our status was before our adoption. He writes, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. See, in these verses, Paul is essentially describing what it's like not to be in God's family. To be a a spiritual orphan who is enslaved under the Mosaic law, living in the orphanage of the world. All throughout his argument in Galatians, he has been making a contrast between living under the law as a way to be right with God and living by faith in what Jesus has done. And now he's making the comparison between being a slave and being a son of God. But he takes a bit of an interesting angle on this because he's appealing to some of the cultural dynamics which both Jew and Gentile would have understood in those days. You see, depending on the exact culture Paul has in mind here, all throughout the firstborn son's childhood, the child would know and expect to inherit his father's possessions. But the thing is, he would only have access to those possessions when he was a certain age. And so what a father or a wealthy person would do in those days is to hand over the oversight of his estate and all his belongings and the oversight of his son to that of a manager or guardian until his son was old enough to receive that inheritance. Which meant even though legally the son was the owner of his dad's stuff, he could not get access to it until a certain time. Which meant practically the heir to the family fortune had the same kind of freedom or liberty as that of a common slave. I mean, this might have been very frustrating for the minor child because he had to listen to the manager or guardian until the date set by the father for him to get what belonged to him. See, once the child got to this date set by the father, it would change his status. He would now then be considered an adult ready to receive the responsibilities of the family. See, but the problem is, under this kind of cultural system, the son 
would feel more like a slave in the family than he would feel like an actual son. Why? Because even though he was the firstborn son, it's like he had no rights. He was told when to wake up, when to brush his teeth, when to go to school, what he should wear. But this kind of bondage was good for him because it helped him to bring him to the maturity he needed before given this inheritance. And Paul has been saying that the law of Moses plays a similar role in the story of salvation. Because there in verse 3, he makes a comparison saying that in the same way we also, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In other words, when we were like a minor child who has not come of age yet, who was not mature enough to get the inheritance, we were also enslaved to the, the elementary one, two, three, or the basic principles of the world. Because those who live their lives under the law, Paul says, are like children who are held in bondage. That's all of us before we were adopted by God. See, it's only through saving faith and trust in Jesus that someone comes of age. In other words, without faith in Jesus, you are still a slave that is imprisoned under the elementary principles of the world. Now, many commentators and scholars offer different perspectives of what Paul means here with elementary principles of the world. Some think he's talking about demon spirits who rule the current world system. They allude back to the start of Galatians where Paul talks about being set free from the present evil age. Others suggest that it refers to actual elements like earth, wind, water, and fire, and the pagan worship that was attached to that, something common among the pagan Gentiles. But it could also just be that Paul is simply referring to the elemental or basic self-efforts of human religion, given the context of Galatians, because he uses the same phrase in Colossians 2.8, saying, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, here Paul is saying that the elementary spirits of the world are linked to human philosophy and human traditions. It's trying to achieve divine acceptance through what you do. Because what was happening in Galatia is that certain religious Jewish traditions like being circumcised, keeping the Jewish calendar, were being forced on the Gentile Christians. Which meant you were simply trying to relate to God based on what you did. It's all about human effort and traditions. Which is like being a slave to yourself on what you do instead of, instead of living like a child of God that has been set free. I mean, many people today still think that the Christian life is all about what I do. If I read my Bible, if I go to church, then I know God must be happy with me, right? But what if I did not do my devotions that morning and I have an accident on the way to work? Is there a correlation? Is God not pleased with me anymore? If this is your mindset, then eventually Christianity feels like slavery. Because you always have to keep doing more. But think about it. The 
The gospel of Jesus is not saying that God is simply making you a better slave. The gospel is saying that you were so enslaved to your sin that even though that is true, God still chose to make you His child. God sets you free from that slavery and treats you as a son, and you get that new status before God. And that's why it's helpful to recognize what you and I were like before we were adopted by God. And then consider, how is it then possible that we can be adopted by God? Because the process of our adoption was this intensive, extensive, and costly process. We see that in the next few verses, verses 4 to 5. The process of our adoption. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. I mean, the word adoption in the Bible can be described as to place someone as an adult son. In other words, it's to bring someone into your family as if they were your very own blood. You see, it was very common that people would adopt an adult person if they didn't have an heir, where the slave or servant would become a son. Well, obvious examples, that of Abraham, right? Abraham, who wanted to adopt Eliezer, his servant, because he could not have kids. And so when we think adoption, we might even think of all those babies that we have at the baby homes back in South Africa. Many of you know that we are involved with this ministry towards orphans, in South Africa, where there's this great need for these orphans to find a new forever family. But if we stop and think about the adoption process today, we can actually see that there's still some significant similarities that help us understand the process God went through to adopt us, to make us sons and daughters of God. Now, one important part of the adoption process is that of timing. Timing. Anyone who wants to adopt a child must know that you might have to wait a very long time before you can actually finalize the process and have that child be in your home. Earlier this year, when the team from Cornerstone was with us in Pretoria, our team celebrated God's faithfulness toward the orphan ministry there, where, we, where He has helped over 70 babies find new homes. But some of the babies have come into the baby home, and they are there for several years before they are matched with a new family. The new parents must wait. The child must wait. The temporary place of safety and the staff must wait because it all has to do with timing. And so often, in our minds, we don't get why it takes so long. I mean, you have a willing parent. You have a needy child. Why can it take so long? There's so much red tape and issues one must think through. But it helps us see that God was patiently waiting as well. And His timing is always perfect. Paul says that when the fullness of time had come. In other words, when the timing was exactly right, it all came together the way God wanted it to. So think about it. If you look at the big picture of what Paul has been saying, even through chapter 3 in the historical argument of salvation history, then we can see that it was the perfect time theologically it made sense religiously, culturally, and even politically that God sent Jesus 
to initiate the adoption process. It was the right time theologically because everything that was happening in the Old Testament and through the law and life under the law has been preparing people for Jesus. Because that's the purpose of the law. It was the wisdom given to show us that we cannot live life by just trying to keep all the rules, that we actually break the rules all the time. So we desperately need someone to help us, to set us free. It was also the right time in a religious sense because of the amount of paganism and idolatry in Rome, which had reached an all-time low. Because God is at work in the details because it was the right time culturally since the Greek language had become so common that it would allow for the gospel to spread even faster. And we know it was the right time politically because the infrastructure of the Roman government had put in place, they would literally pave the way actual roads for the gospel to reach the rest of the world. And in a similar way, as a father assigned a specific time for his son to get the inheritance, so God the Father determined a specific time when God the Son would come to give all God's children their inheritance and adopt them into his family. I mean, this is big picture stuff again. God has a plan, and nothing is going to stop that plan. He wants you to be part of His family because of Jesus Christ. But another key part of the adoption process, especially when it comes to international adoptions, is the cost and the screening process. I mean, the new parents must qualify to be able to adopt. This long screening process is done to see if they will be a good match with the child. And these potentially new parents must then get, get on a plane and travel to the other side of the world to meet the child. Recently, we had a couple going through this long screening process. And eventually, they traveled from Sweden to adopt one of the babies from the baby home in South Africa. But now think about what this was like for God. Paul says, when all the timing was right, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those we're under the law. Because to be adopted into God's family, you need the right qualifications as well. And Jesus had all the right qualifications. And what are those qualifications? Well, He's fully divine. He's fully divine because He was already with the Father before He was sent. It shows us that Jesus existed before He was born in Bethlehem. Second person of the Trinity who willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father and went where he was sent so that we can become part of God's family. And he was sent to be born of a woman, which means he became like one of us so that God can adopt us. He had the qualifications of divinity, but also of humanity. But that's not all. He was also born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus was born as a Jewish man who grew up in a Jewish home. And he perfectly fulfilled all the demands of the law. Which means he was perfectly righteous in everything he ever did. Which gave him the right qualifications to go to the cross. So that he can die for those who were under the law. And live like slaves to their own efforts. But not only did Jesus qualify. We also see that the process of adoption for God was very costly. Very costly. 
I mean, think about it this way. Imagine my wife and I wanted to adopt kids from somewhere in the Middle East. And imagine we sent Ben, our son, to go on our behalf to finalize the process. And imagine Ben was executed while he was in the Middle East because that's the only way for them to allow us to adopt these other kids. That was the requirement that we had to sacrifice our son. And so think about that. Because of the gravity of your sin, because of the holiness of God, the Father had to sacrifice His Son so that we become, can become His family. Can you see that God has gone, gone to these most extreme lengths possible to tell you and show you this Christmas that I want to be your father? The process of adoption for God is way more extensive and expensive than we can imagine. He waited. He came. He qualified. He sacrificed so that you can stop living like a slave and start living like a son. I mean, often when we talk to people about adoption, they are interested, but then they get some concerns along the way. People don't want to go through the process of adoption because they're afraid of the consequences it might have on their family. I mean, given the child's history and high-risk factors, they have all these questions of uncertainty. Will he turn out to be violent or abusive? Will they turn out to be sexually perverted? Will he turn out to be a drunkard? But I mean, consider the, what the Bible says about us, Ephesians 2. Being dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at the work of sons of disobedience. Knowing exactly what you are like, God says, I still want to be your father. Jesus not only took on human flesh, he became the curse of the Lord for us so that we can understand that we are no longer simply better slaves, but we are sons and daughters of God. I like how one man says it. He says, when Jesus died and rose again, he not only paid for our freedom, but also provided us with the adoption papers, making us sons and daughters of the Most High God. Because not only does adoption help us see what we were like, we see the process of what God went through to rescue us and, and make us His own, knowing exactly what we were like. But we also see that being adopted by God comes with new rights and privileges, which is our final point for today. The privileges of our adoption. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, like any good parent, God wants His children to rest confidently in His fatherly love. He wants his newly adopted children to never doubt the love he has for them. Because he knows we do. And so to understand the extent of the love he has for us, we need to recognize the privileges we have of being a child of God. And one of the privileges we have is that God has sent his spirit into our hearts. Verse 6. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so consider for a moment what this shows us regarding the Trinity. First, God the Father is at work by sending the Son. Then the Son comes to redeem us from the curse of the law by dying in our place and rising from the dead so that we can be adopted. But then God also gives us His Spirit to help us understand that we are now His beloved children. The adoption process is final, which means we have the privilege of having every member of the Trinity involved in our adoption. But also what this means is that when it comes to biblical adoption, God not only changes our paperwork, He changes our very nature. He changes our very nature. When God adopts you into His family, He sends His Spirit into your heart and changes you from the inside out. He goes to the deepest place that He can find inside of you and He takes up permanent residence there. And then over time, He works in your life and as you abide in Him, following Him and trusting Him, and He transforms you more and more to look like Jesus Christ. And because you have the Spirit of God in you, you also have a new sound. You have a new sound. You have a new relationship with the Father, and you have a new cry. Because from the moment you are born again, you begin to cry with a distinctive new cry. But what does that cry sound like? What does it sound like to be a newly adopted child of God? Well, Paul says here, doesn't he? Abba, Father. Abba, Father. The term Abba is a term of respect and a term of endearment. It can be translated as daddy. This is what the new child of God sounds like when he or she is faced with the challenges of life. Because this is a cry of intimacy and dependence. In fact, we know that Jesus had the same words on his lips when he was contemplating the agony that waited for him at the cross. Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This is what Jesus cried out in his time of greatest need. And because we have God's Spirit in our hearts, we cry the same cry as Jesus. We sound the same as Jesus did when he was getting ready to suffer for us. It's a cry that says, Daddy, I need you. Daddy, I can't do this without you. But Daddy, please do what is best. I will trust you. Paul said it like this to the Romans, Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. In other words, the cry of an adopted child of God is the cry of the Son Himself. Jesus uttering this cry to God in you and for you through His Spirit. 
It's the cry that God the Father hears and says, that's my child. That's my child. Which means God's children have a different way of responding to life's challenges than anyone else in the world. It's not that we have less problems. It's it's not that we don't get sad or disappointed. It's that we make a different sound to those who do not really know God as their father. A different sound to those who feel as if they are not good enough for their father. And so perhaps look at your life and how you deal with suffering right now. What does the sound of your cry sound like? Is it a cry of intimacy, dependence, and trust? Or is it only a cry of complaining and grumbling, sounding the same as the rest of the world? Commentator F.F. Bruce said, Abba is the voice of the Spirit of Jesus on the lips of His people. This is the cry of people who understand Christmas and what Jesus came to do. Knowing who they are and to whom they belong. Which now brings us to another privilege of being adopted by God, which is because you have the Spirit of the Son, who have full rights to the inheritance as His Son. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul is telling the Galatian believers that no matter what they have been told by these Jewish false teachers, they are not slaves. They are sons of God. And because they are sons of God through adoption, they have the same privilege of receiving God's inheritance as sons. Not because they did anything to deserve it. Not because they are circumcised. Not because they keep the Jewish calendar. Not because they made themselves more Jewish. So we've got to think about that because you have to ask yourself, is it possible that your obedience to God can maybe prove that you are like a servant, but not truly a son? Because it is the Spirit of God that confirms to you that you are one of His by enabling you to call Him Abba Father. In other words, a servant that's doing, doing, doing stuff for God can maybe call God Lord. But it's only the true child of God that can genuinely call Him Daddy. Because He is your Daddy. You love Him and respect Him and you obey Him. John Stott says it well. He says, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by His Son, but to assure us of, his, of it by His Spirit. He sent His Son that we might have the status of sonship. And He sent His Spirit that we might have an experience of it. Because when Jesus came to this world, and we look to Him by faith in what He has done, True believers have reached the age where they are ready to receive their father's inheritance. And this also means that Jew or Gentile, African or American, black or white, get as much of that inheritance as any other believer. Because in God's family, we are all adopted. We are all equal. And we get the same inheritance. Sometimes I like to tell my daughter, Kara. You are my favorite daughter. And even though she knows she is my only daughter, it makes her feel loved. Now God is telling you through understanding biblical adoption 
that He wants to be your Father. That you are His child. That He is willing to pay the highest price that you can no longer live like a slave, trying to oppress Him with your own religious works, but that you can know Him as a son or daughter, to cry out to Him with a spirit-enabling cry, saying, no matter what you are going through right now, Daddy, I know you love me. Daddy, I know you want what's best for me. Daddy, thank you for your spirit that allows me to know that I belong to you. Daddy, thank you for my inheritance, which I do not deserve. Thank you for allowing me to share in the riches of Jesus. You see, these are all consequences of Christmas. But how can this truth of adoption help us as we live for Jesus here in Fullerton, California, and beyond? Because knowing that God wants to be my Father firstly helps me when I'm discouraged by my struggle with sin. It helps me when I'm discouraged by my struggle with sin. It's when we struggle with sin that we think we can lose God's approval. But knowing that I am a child of God, a son and not a slave, helps me to relate to God as my father and not as my boss. And helps me to not act like a slave who is sinfully afraid of God, but as a son or daughter that is assured of his love, running to him when we fail. Secondly, it helps me feel close to him when I pray. Because when we say, our father in heaven. We have this new intimate connection with God. When we cry, Abba, Father, we confirm that we have legally inherited the rights of Jesus himself, which means we can approach God with all the confidence we have because of Christ, because we understand his grace, that he will see us like he sees Jesus, and he hears us like he hears Jesus. Thirdly, it helps me know that if God was willing to pay so much to adopt me and give me such a great inheritance, then surely He will provide for what I need right now. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Himself up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? See, we often live in fear that we might, what might happen in the future, where our physical or spiritual needs overwhelm us. But knowing I am a loved child of God helps us to be free to turn to that fear and into dependence and worship. Because finally, fourthly, it helps me to know what I sound like when I'm suffering. It helps me to know what I sound like when I'm suffering. We don't have to sound like everyone else around us. Because the child of God understands that the pruning scissors of love is making me more and more like Jesus every day. And my groanings are a groan of trust to His plan and His will for my life. Romans 8.38 For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Adoption is this beautiful picture of being loved. It's a beautiful picture of being in a family. It's a beautiful picture of sharing in love and blessing of that family. And none of us in this room ever deserve that kind of love. So this Christmas, I want you to think, do I really believe God wants to be my father? And how does that change the way you live your life? Closing with another quote from Packer, he says, In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, justification is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father, adoption is a greater thing. What a gift. What a gift. Let's pray.